Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. And on this show, we take you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and try to find an answer. And this week, Caroline, I'm bringing you and our listeners the very first widely publicized, reported UFO abduction in American history. Ooh. This is what happened to Betty and Barney Hill. Ah, yes. Or at least what they say happened. One night in New Hampshire in 1961. One night in New Hampshire. Wasn't that a dirty film? I don't know. I didn't go to your bachelorette. (laughs) Zing. So, this is a very interesting case. Uh, I know you know a little bit of the broad strokes of this case. For our our listeners, Barney and Betty Hill were a couple, um, a married couple who uh, took a trip One night in the early 60s from New Hampshire to Canada and back on their way home, they observed some strange lights in the sky. And then they, after feeling like they had lost some time on the drive, worried about their their perceived amnesia for a couple months, eventually went to hypnosis sessions that brought out uh, these memories of an abduction and uh, examination they had had. Yeah, pretty crazy story. One of the OGs. Yeah, it was definitely one of the things, like we talked about with Georgia Damsky, who's another of my favorite characters, <laughs> this ties very heavily into the ve- the beginning of alien conspiracy thought and uh, uh, UFO truthers and the, the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, 40s into 60s, you have all of that good, old-timey sci-fi going on, and uh, you also have a lot of these events. We have George Gan- Adamski kind of heading it off, we have Roswell, Um and then we have this. Yeah, Betty and Barney Hill. Uh, so let's talk about Betty and Barney real quick. Um, Barney Hill dropped out of high school uh, to enlist in the army for three years, mm-hmm. uh, during which time a grenade accident actually blew out his teeth and uh, forced him to get full dentures. Oh, my God. Which he was a little self-conscious about. Um, he also married his first wife at the, around this time while he was in the service. Her name was Ruby, and he got a job as a mail carrier uh, after his discharge. Okay. Started working for the post office. Uh, now, in 1956, Barney was vacationing in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Uh, oh, I've been there. With his family. They lived in Philly at the time. Mm-hmm. Have I been to Portsmouth? No. Oh. I went with Sarah. Um, in any case, in Portsmouth, maybe you stayed at, a, at the same boarding house at, uh, as Barney Hill and his wife did. Oh, yeah, we were just two gals on the town staying at a boarding house. Yeah, a friend of theirs owned a boarding house in town, so that's where they stayed on their little trip. And while they were there, they met a young Betty Barrett, who was staying at the same boarding house while her uh, home got renovated. Oh. They exchanged phone numbers, and the families kept in touch. 
Mm-hmm. Now, by the next year, Barney and his wife were separated, and he gave Betty a call. And oh, the... I bet he was planning on it. The the uh, long-distance kind of friendship kind of heated up and kindled into a romance, and they would see each other frequently on weekends and uh, for vacations. And before too long, Barney was actually meeting Betty's family in New Hampshire, which was a big and um, maybe stressful moment for Barney and Betty. Sure. I mean, it is for anyone. Yeah, but in this case, uh, Barney was also black and Betty was white. Ah. And interracial uh, relationships, let alone marriages, were were still a pretty controversial thing in 1961. Oh, for sure. Sorry, 1957 we're still in. Even worse. So, as it turns out, Barney fit right in with Betty's family, by all accounts. There were a few bad apples who kind of stayed away from them because they were racist. But Mm -hmm. um, mostly the family raved about how kind and friendly and polite this man was. And uh, best of all, and most importantly, he was kind of a socially minded political community organizer type and he could talk politics and current events all day which the barrett family was big on politics and current events so uh, they loved sitting up at all hours talking politics around the table with barney well that's nice that's a nice little unexpected twist i mean you would expect uh, oh this divorced man this guy who's not of our race and it's the 50s um it's kind of like watching the queen's gambit and every scene being like don't get molested, don't get molested, don't get molested. Right. It was prestige television. We felt like it had to be coming. Mm-hmm. And a period drama. Now, for Betty's part, she was a divorcee. After a 14-year marriage, she had married a divorced chef, a diner chef, I think he worked at a diner, uh, named Bob Stewart. And Betty had just dropped out of college due to an abdominal infection that prevented her from finishing her degree. <sighs> So looking at the end of her kind of college career, she married this guy, Bob, who she met at a a diner, thought he was okay. Um, And she spent the next four years raising Bob's three kids from a previous marriage while he cheated on her. Nice, Bob. Yeah. Uh, She stuck around for the benefit of the children. And by the time they left the nest, she was ready to leave as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, she got a job as a social worker to support herself at the New Hampshire Division of Welfare, which she loved because Betty Hill loved to help people. Nice lady, though. Nice lady, and uh, very similar to Barney. Part of what, uh, you know, helped them get along so well. Sure. Now, meanwhile, Barney finally got transferred from Philadelphia to the Boston post office in March, which was at least closer to New Hampshire. Sure. And the two were married on May 12th, 1960. But they wouldn't, that was kind of almost a formality. They wouldn't live together for another 16 months after that while he's waiting for this transfer to go through. Ugh, awful. Yeah. Uh, and even after he moves, remember, Barney is now commuting from Portsmouth, New Hampshire to Boston every day. Every day? That's four, at least... It's four hours. Each way. Yes. Yeah. And then he works a I mail- mean, it took us several hours to get to Portsmouth. So, yeah. And then he takes a mail carrier's shift in Boston... And then he drives four hours home. I thought my dad still working in New York uh, when we moved up to Connecticut was bad. But Jesus. Yeah. At least that was only like, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours, depending on the day. Wow. Four hours. Eight eight hours in the car every day. Not even because he's a mailman. Mm -hmm. He's He's spending all. Well, I I don't know. It's also the early 60s and and mail carriers still sometimes do a... um, foot route right so he could have been walking the streets of boston with a, a bag god he must have been exhausted yeah 
Um, he also missed his sons from his previous marriage who were back in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. He was also black and working in New Hampshire or living in New Hampshire and working in Boston in the early 60s. Well, it's better than Alabama. Boston in the early 60s was a pretty racist place. Sure. In fact, Boston now isn't a not racist place. Anyway, the, just, the, the point... I going to make an Irish joke, but I decided not to. Oh, don't worry. Barney will do it for you in a little bit. Thanks, Barney. Needless to say, in autumn of 1961, Barney badly needed a break. And he surprised Betty by requesting a few days off and suggesting a trip to Montreal and Niagara Falls. Pack your bags, Betty. We're going today. What year is this? 1961. 61. Okay. And this is, they've been married for almost two years at this point, but they consider this a late honeymoon. It is the first uh, vacation they've really gotten a chance to get. Okay. So on September 17th, which was a Sunday, they set out, um, they brought $70 between them, which was all the money they had. Hmm a cooler of food and drinks to supply them for the weekend and Betty's pistol because they thought they might not, if they couldn't find a motel at some point, they might be sleeping in the car and they needed the pistol for protection. And they brought their dog, a dachshund named, <gasps> named Delcy. Uh, yay! A dachshund. What kind of dachshund? I don't know. I haven't been able to find any pictures of <sighs> I Delcy. Need, I need pictures. I need to know what kind of coat Delcy has. Listeners, if you can find... Any pictures of Delcy? I believe she's a miniature dachshund. Oh. We we would like to see what color her coat was. Now, just let me know straight off the bat, does Delcy get out okay in this episode? Is she all right? Well, if there's one thing I've learned, Carrie, in life, nobody gets out okay on a long enough timeline. But Delcy does survive this trip, yes. Oh, I don't like how you said that. Well, the... I'm just telling you that between 1961 and now, 2021, this dog has passed away. If you say so. (laughs) (laughs) So they drove to Niagara Falls and they crossed the- With the the dog? With the dog, yes. They crossed the border not far from there. I'm sure Delcy's sitting on um, Betty's lap and looking out the window. Did Delcy get abducted too? Okay, hold on. I'm, I'm getting ahead. Now there's a dachshund in the equation, and I am just raring to go. Really up the stakes for you there, Carrie. It really did. So they visit Toronto once they cross over into Canada, and they drove through the Thousand Islands region. And uh, finally, on September 20th, they uh, arrived in Montreal. They did a little bit of sightseeing, but they were done earlier than they thought. So while they were planning on staying in Montreal for the night... Barney kind of took a wrong turn on the way to where he thought a hotel would be. And then he said, okay, well, we'll just try to find a motel on the outskirts of town. But then he kept, I think he took another wrong turn. Oh, Barney. Just found himself driving further and further from the center of town. And so eventually they said, look, screw it. We'll just go home. There's a storm coming anyway. Um, because Tropical Storm Esther was uh, was coming. Mm-hmm. And she had 130 mile an hour winds out over the over the Atlantic at this time. So they figured, well, just in case that's hitting tomorrow, we don't want to get stuck up here. If we get tired, we'll stop for the night in the in the, the White Mountains once we get to New Hampshire. But let's just try to make it home. Mm-hmm. Five hour drive. Simple. Now, as they drive, Betty sees what at first she believes to be a falling star. Although she said it was streaking up rather than down. Hmm. I guess. Based on perspective, you might be a little turned around. Yeah. 
But then the star she's watching comes to a stop in the southwest, inches its way upward. And Betty said later that she thought, oh, this is one of those satellites they've been talking about. <laughs> her dad was like super into the space program and had been telling her about, you know, satellites. And she, she, she was, oh, I'm seeing a satellite. But then the, the light in the sky ascended faster toward the moon and stopped suddenly again next to the moon. This didn't seem like what a satellite should be doing. And so Betty demands that Barney uh, stop the car. Mm-hmm. So that they can look at this. Now, Sean, just as a little detour, have you ever seen anything weird and unexplainable in the night sky? Well, you and I saw a fireball in the night sky. We did see a fireball uh, this past summer in um, out east on Long Island. And that was bonkers. <laughs> yeah, we were... I was literally, it was, we saw a streak of light that like got bigger and flamier as it moved across the sky. And it made a sound. Yep. Like it was on fire. And then it was gone. It was literally like a split second that this happened. And then a a few moments passed, we looked at each other and we're like, did, did you see that? (laughs) Did you see that? Yep. Um, yeah, I was literally looking up. Fireballs in the sky. <laughs> no, well, I was scanning the news in the area to see if an airliner had exploded. Yeah. But it seemed closer than that. It seemed like it was right over the bay. It was, folks, it was a wild, wild thing to see. And I'm glad because I think you were turning or something at the time. And I'm like, Sean, look at that. And I'm glad you saw it because you would have never believed me. <laughs> I wouldn't have. Um, but yeah, I don't know if it was a meteor or what. It was, it was, it was cool. Mm-hmm. It's cool is what it was. All Betty and Barney could see at this moment was lights. And Barney is trying to ignore her, continues driving while Betty continues man. to watch the craft. And Barney's telling her, yeah, that's an airplane you're looking at. But Betty watches this quote unquote airplane follow an erratic path across the moon back and forth. Mm. Um, Barney finally says, okay, listen, I'll pull the car over. He pulls the car over to the side of the road. And they both take a look with binoculars. And uh, Barney described the movement of the craft as being like a paddle ball. Oh, like ping-ponging back and forth. Yeah, it would, it would move quickly one way, then without seeming to turn, move back in the other direction. Interesting. Like as if on, on the end of an elastic band and, and bouncing. Mm-hmm. Which, I don't know if you guys know this, is not typical. That's, that's <laughs> true. It, airliners do not usually do that. Um, in any case, they start driving again because, you know, what are we going to do? I think Betty had an idea of following the craft. I think Barney might have told her, yeah, sure, but he really just probably wanted to get back on the road in the direction of New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Well, Betty keeps watching this light in the sky, and, and to Barney's eyes, it does kind of seem to be following them. It's still overhead in the sky as they near Indian Head, a landmark he, he knew. This is a cliff face in New York State that looks like it's an it's not a carving i believe it's a natural uh, rock formation that looks like the face of a native american so right now they're in new york yeah new york state okay not the city yeah i know and barney f- f- finds a he's been here before he knows the place he drives into a field he parks the car gets out and takes out his binoculars to look at these lights in the sky both people said that at this point the craft, they're calling it at this point, was much closer, maybe only a couple hundred feet over their head. Oh, wow. They described it as uh, a flattened circular disc, and it was 
I'm sorry, at this point, that Barney stops the car in the middle of the road, throws the door open, and uh, looks at it with his binoculars. And as he watches, the disc makes an arcing movement from directly overhead to the treetops, uh, above the treetops in an adjacent field, and then uh, back again. He said the craft was pro- looked like it was 60 to 80 feet across. Very big. But flat. But flat. Yes. Interesting. As he watches, Barney claims two fins or wings extended from the sides of the craft with red lights on them. And he looks through the binoculars and uh, sees windows, two rows of windows across the front of the craft and inside what he thought was a group of figures. Oh, so it's pretty close at this point. Yeah, that's what Barney says. And around this time, he tears the binoculars from his face, sprints back to the car screams hysterically at Betty, They're going to capture us! And he throws the car into gear and drives south. Now, as Barney drives south, the disc supposedly shifted directly over their car so they couldn't see it anymore. Ooh, (laughs) that's creepy. It's like Jaws swimming under the boat. Yes! So, it's so much that moment. And Betty and Barney then said they both felt, heard a buzzing or beeping sound that, quote, bounced off the trunk of the car. I don't know what that... I don't know how to meet, how to take that meaning. Huh. The sound bounced off the car, they say. But a buzzing or beeping sound, and the car vibrated, and they felt their bodies tingle. Now, after some time, they heard a similar noise, and then kind of shook out of what felt like a trance, they said, looked down and realized they had traveled 35 miles. And he's still actively driving at this point? Yes, but they had... Apparently, basically no memory of that stretch of time between the Well, it's weird for both of them. I mean, you know, drivers often get highway hypnosis, not usually for 35 miles, Uh and certainly not usually the passenger. Now, the important question here, Sean, is what was the dog up to? Oh, I uh, (laughs) I have no intel on Delcy. I have to imagine she was being a good, sweet girl. When the Hills tried to remember what had happened during that 35-mile drive, um, as they were discussing it later, they could only put together vague flashes of memory. A sudden unplanned turn, a roadblock of some kind, and a huge fiery orb resting on the ground. Hmm. In any case, they pressed on, expecting to arrive around 3 a.m. based on when they had left, but dawn was breaking as they rolled into Portsmouth. Okay. Weird. Yeah, both their watches were stopped as they looked down at them. And in fact, both of those watches never ticked again. But when the Hills arrived home, they found that instead of four and a half hours like they expected, their drive had taken seven. Wow. Did the car have a clock? It's never mentioned once. Only the fact that their watches are are Hmm. broken. Interesting. Okay. That's a lot of extra time. It's, it's missing time, which mm-hmm. is an, a common thing uh, in abduction stories. Yep. And for Betty and Barney Hill, it's where the story really starts, not ends. So, uh, but let's get into it, right? In the immediate aftermath of this event, Barney found that the leather strap on his binoculars had broken, but he couldn't remember when that had happened. Ditto for the toes of his dress shoes, his best dress shoes, he said, which had been scraped badly but he couldn't remember that happening either. 
almost as if they had been dragged on the ground. Interesting. Now, Barney felt compelled, he said, to go into the bathroom basically immediately and inspect his genitals. Uh, he, did, he didn't feel anything wrong with them or see anything wrong with them, but he just, he, he was like, you know, I got to take a look at these. <laughs> and then, Is that typical, Sean? Like after any weird situation, do you always just uh, check out your junk? I just, I call it a quick catalog, you know, make sure everything's <laughs> still, still there, still intact. Weird. Okay. And both hills felt compelled to take long showers and then they slept for a little while. It wasn't until after she woke up that Betty noticed that the dress she had worn on the trip was torn at the hem, the zipper, and the lining. And there was some kind of a pink powder uh, near the tears. Hmm. Yeah, I bet you'd love to know more about that powder, but unfortunately, Betty hung the dress on a clothesline and the powder blew away. Ah, damn. Yeah. Uh, There were also shiny spots on the car, she noticed, that uh, weren't there before, specifically on the trunk. Shiny spots like they had been over buffing it or what what that's, what does it look like? That's the impression I get. Like it's just the same color of paint but shinier, significantly noticeably shinier in a um a circle of a couple inches across. Hmm. Yeah, like someone had buffed those spots. Interesting. Now Betty called a physicist friend of the family, I guess, or a friend <laughs> of the family knew a physicist supposedly. Who doesn't have just a physicist friend? Someone gave them the advice to wave a compass around those spots on the car to see if anything happened. Because That's just drunk Uncle George. You know, wave a compass over him, maybe we'll tell you something. Well, apparently, many stories of, of... There are elements of many UFO encounter and abduction stories that have some elements suggesting strong magnetic fields are involved. Mm-hmm. So the idea was, see if, the ma- magnet, uh, see if anything magnetic was done to your car. Now, Barney and Betty claim that when they waved a, mag- a compass near those shiny spots, the needle would spin crazily. Specifically over the spots. Yes. Huh. Um, Barney also noticed the trunk was unlocked. Well. Unlatched. <laughs> that could have just been Barney being Barney. It could have been. My trunk is frequently unlatched. Well, don't spread that around. Now, the couple... Bar- Barney's inclination was to never speak of this to anyone. <laughs> Typical man. Uh, I can't blame him. It sounds crazy, and he didn't want to be viewed as crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but a cop neighbor told them that it would be a good idea to report this to nearby Pease Air Force Base, which did um, op- actual like request, had a, a general ongoing request out for reports of any unexplained aerial phenomenon. Sure, I'm sure they were very, very concerned about Russian spacecraft or missiles or things like that. Exactly right. And um, Betty called them up and uh, gave her story, but she says she withheld some of the details that she thought would sound crazy. Like the losing time and stuff? Like losing time, uh, like Barney's intimations that he may have seen people through the windows of a spacecraft. Mm Mm-hmm. The following day, a major Paul Henderson uh, called to take a phone interview from Betty, uh, and he forwarded her report to Project Blue Book, which was Ah. the government's project to investigate and catalog uh, UFO phenomena. Yeah, that was the OG X-Files, basically. For the record, based on that initial report, Major Henderson's opinion was that these people had probably misidentified Jupiter. Mm, No. 
Jupiter, you'll note, does not move. Doesn't have windows. Uh, there's a whole lot of things that it doesn't do or have. Betty was referred to NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aer- Aerial Phenomena. Mm-hmm. A name that sounds like a government panel that would have been created in the 50s or 60s, but is in fact a private organization of uh, UFO nerds. Yeah, that was going to be my main question. <laughs> is this legit? Now, in this report, Betty included all of the weird stuff about um, men who Barney claimed to have seen through the windows in shiny black uniforms. Oh. More on that later. Now, a Walter Webb, uh, a NICAP investigator, came to perform a six-hour interview with Betty. They're thorough, that NICAP. Yeah. Uh, he tried to talk to Barney about it, too, but Barney... He was busy in the bathroom checking his genitals. Well, Barney confided to Webb that he thought he might have some mental blocks mm. regarding the events, and he was starting to be concerned that there were parts of the night that his brain didn't want him to remember. Oh, repressing, repressed, like trauma. Repressed memories. And this is an idea that's going to start to obsess Barney over the next couple of years. Uh. In any case, Webb reported back to NICAP uh, with full confidence that the Hills were telling uh, 100% the truth. He, he believed these people. Okay, so we got Jupiter, we got their legit. So let's see what other opinions we get. Well, they, they didn't really talk to too many people about it, and it was just gnawing away at the Hill's minds, kind of. That missing time is the big thing. Two and a half hours of your life that seem to be gone is a, is a disturbing thing, especially with what Barney claimed he had seen just before the time went missing. Sure, that's a lot. Yeah, and they had no more kind of answers, no more focus to this, um, until Betty started having a series of intense and vivid dreams. Actually, she's eating Doritos before bed? Unclear. They probably were invented at this point, (laughs) but I'm not even sure about that. Uh, September 29th, 1961, Betty started to have these dreams. They continued for- So this is soon after. 10 days, yeah. Okay. Five nights, she said they were the most intense dreams she ever had. But they were a disconnected kind of series of vignettes from the sound of it. And it was only through conscious kind of notebooking after she woke up, she would write down her dreams, right? And she was able to put together a narrative of these kind of different pieces. Mm -hmm. A timeline that seemed to make sense. Betty dreamed of a roadblock which we remember from the flashes of of memory they supposedly had. But now the roadblock included men surrounding the car, at which point Betty felt like she was losing consciousness but trying to fight it. Men, specifically. Men. She then dreamed she was forced to walk through the woods by two of these men. Are they wearing the shiny black uniforms? They are wearing the shiny black uniforms. They are... Uh, Actually, she doesn't mention shiny black uniforms in her dream. I'm sorry. But they are about five feet tall in her dream. And the men have dark eyes and hair, like jet black eyes and hair, uh, gray skin, blue lips, and uh, prominent Jimmy Durante style noses. (laughs) Doesn't sound like these guys are doing very well. Uh, Gray skin and blue lips. Oof. Betty also dreamed of walking up a ramp with two of the little men into a disc-shaped metallic craft with Barney walking behind her. Mm-hmm. 
She thought Barney might be sleepwalking or in some kind of a trance because he wouldn't answer her in the dream. She dreamed that she and Barney were separated, that she protested to one of the little men, and one who she kind of sensed was the leader, maybe? <laughs> uh -huh. Explained to her that together, if they were examined together, it's going to take longer. So it's better <laughs> if we separate you. <laughs> I like how even this like alien creatures like just don't worry about it. Okay, just don't worry about it. She's then brought into a separate room in the dream. Mm. And another of the men walks in. Uh, she thinks of this one as the examiner, or she always refers to him as the examiner. Ew. Now, the examiner uh, spoke English. He had very long fingers. <laughs> the examiner spoke English to her in the dream, but imperfectly. He was hard to understand. Um. And he wanted to note the difference between humans and, uh, and these, whatever these people were. Uh, so they sat her down in a chair, shone a bright light on her. Uh, she dreamt of her eyes, ears, mouth, nose, and hands being examined. Her fingernails being trimmed. Ew. At some point, the little men scraped some skin off of, I think, her leg onto uh, a cellophane-like substance with, with a dull knife, like a letter opener. And then... They tell her they need to perform a nervous system test. Uh, no, thank you. And there's this EEG-like machine um, where they have these two needles. Oh, I don't like a needle. Oh, but these aren't injections. These needles are just gently touched to Betty's temples, face, neck, and spine, and uh, also under her arms and around her hips. Okay, so it doesn't, like, pierce her. No, and, and she f she didn't see any kind of, you know, the, the little needles on the paper tracing mm -hmm. brainwaves. She didn't see any readout like that, but she assumed one must be somewhere. Interesting. Very interesting. Then they removed her dress. Nope. Mm-mm. Um, the leader had a little trouble with the zipper, that and, and her dress tore slightly. And she said, no, oh, wait, let me just show you how it works. And she shows him how the zipper works, and they uh, don't destroy the rest of the dress. It's like fumbling around with a high schooler. And then they take out a four to six inch needle and oh, stick it nope. into Betty's belly button. Ugh. I, I literally, I think I heard my mom scream. <laughs> <laughs> from the I'm other, I'm the other your, town. I'm certain your dad did as she's listening to this episode. Oh, God. Uh, Betty feels intense pain, stabbing. She said, yeah. But she said not even like the pain that you would expect from this needle, more like if it was a knife being driven into her belly. I, there's something about the belly button. Mm -mm. The leader, quote unquote, the one she thought of as the leader. Hey, pipe down, you're fine. Looked at the, the examiner and the leader looked at each other, I guess, with confusion about her pain. And then the leader like waved a hand in front of her face and the pain vanished. <laughs> wow. Okay. Remember, this is all just Betty's accounts of her dreams we're going on right now. Yeah. It's messed up. At that point, the examiner leaves and Betty's left alone for a little while. Did they leave the, did they take the needle out or leave it in? No, they took it out. Okay. She dreamed that uh, sometime later, there was a commotion from the next room. Barney. And several of the aliens, several of the little men came back in with the examiner. And the examiner starts looking in Betty's mouth. Ew. And reaching into her mouth and tugging at her teeth, perplexed. Oh, <laughs> that's kind of funny. <laughs> the leader came in and explained, his came out and yours didn't. 
And I'd like to keep it that way, Slim. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, leave mine alone. Uh, Betty thought this was funny. It is funny. Yeah, it is funny. And uh, she explained uh, dentures to the leader. But th- He puts fake ones in his mouth because his were all blown out. I'm not quoting anything here. I'm, I'm, I'm giving, I'm deeply paraphrasing. But you have to imagine Betty was already paraphrasing because she's quoting her own dream, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't feel bad about it. The conversation went something like this. Well, you see, Barney has to wear dentures, which, um, oh, sometimes <laughs> when humans get older... They have to wear... Sometimes when humans blow them out with a grenade. They have to wear fake teeth because their old ones aren't... Um, but Barney's not old. He just had an accident. And <laughs> and then the leader goes, what is old? Yikes. And she goes, oh, okay. Um, so humans only live a certain amount of uh, time before they uh, die. I think it's like 100 years, but usually it's less. What is die? What is time was his uh, next Oh, question. no. He had no concept of time, and, and Betty gave up. That was yeah, too that's big. Yeah, that's a little much. Too big to explain. Um, as the conversa- conversation turned to other areas, um, at some point, it's hard to place this in the timeline, because remember, these dreams came to her as fractured, like, unconnected events. Mm-hmm. At some point, she also dreamed of having a conversation with the leader, who's my favorite character in this story. 100%. Where she was, she's explaining, oh, we eat um, stuff like meat, um, potatoes, vegetables, milk. What is vegetables? Mm. I mean, if he didn't know what time was, he's not going to know what friggin' broccoli is. And at this point, uh, oh boy, she's trying to explain. Um, oh boy. But she said that there's such a great variety of vegetables that she didn't know how to describe what a vegetable was. Something that comes from the ground and... She didn't get there. She just said, well, it's this thing that's... Ooh, but there's so many of them. Well, squash is my favorite. Okay. <laughs> what, what, what is squash? Yeah, obviously. This is all really what she what said. What is favorite? Betty really had this dream. She said, well, squash is a yellow... What is yellow? No. Oh. And then she wandered the room trying to find yellow things to show them what yellow was but there was no yellow in the room nothing yellow honey how'd you even decide to come to earth (laughs) you don't know shit um in betty's in another dream betty saw a book of strange symbols about five by eight inches and made of uh, what looked like plastic i picture like laminated pages on a Mm -hmm. spiral binding Mm -hmm. and inside were tables full of just strange symbols Hmm. and uh the leader jokingly asks her can you read it (laughs) oh someone thinks he's a comedian and she says no no that's not possible but i'd love to take this as a souvenir because no one's gonna believe me and the leader's cool with it he goes yes you can take it souvenir tourism uh betty asked where the men came from and the leader pulled from the ceiling, like in a 1960s classroom, a, a, a geography class style map, like a telescoping map, uh-huh. came down from a thing uh, of stars, and he pointed to a, a cluster of stars. Looks nice. But around this time, as she was looking at the map, the other aliens in the room, the other little men in the room, we don't know what they are. Yes, yeah. <laughs> the other little men noticed that she was holding the book. And uh, there was an argument amongst all of the... You told her she could take the book. 
No, she can't take the book. That's yeah. my book. And finally, the leader, who maybe wasn't so much the leader after all, had to explain that he'd been overruled and the others didn't want them to remember. Hey, sorry. Uh, <laughs> hate to take back a gift, but I'm going to have to take that book now. He elaborated that even if they did remember anything, their stories would differ slightly and therefore no one would ever believe them because of the modification that had been done to their memories. Well, that's... Smart. Convenient. Very smart. <laughs> oh, smart. Yes. Yeah. Smart's the word. Um, so those were the dreams. And Betty told a few friends about this, but mostly, especially Barney, wanted to keep this mostly under wraps and not talk to too many people about the small men and the spacecraft. Mm-hmm. But I get the impression that Betty talked about these dreams a lot. Oh. Meanwhile, Betty and Barney both still couldn't betty's starting to put a hypothesis together for where what happened during those missing hours of time but barney's still deeply uncomfortable with the amnesia that they seemed to have during that drive mm -hmm. a friend of theirs mentioned hypnosis at some point as a possibility uh betty super into that barney was well, not so much he thought it sounded a little new agey yeah you know, little little fake, little, uh, I, don't, I don't know. Barney's a man of the 60s. He doesn't want to be hypnotized. He's a man of the early 60s. Yeah. Late 60s, he'd be doing LSD and tripping in a field or something. <laughs> but as the years go on, Barney's health worsens. Uh, anxiety and exhaustion mount from his daily four-hour commute to Boston and back. Uh, he's he's super involved at church and with civil rights causes, and, and again, he's kind of a community leader. Uh, he serves on various committees and councils whenever he can, so he's keeping himself busy even when he's not spending 16 to 18 hours a day going to and from work yeah. and doing work. And at this point, he's suffering from high blood pressure, constant headaches, and insomnia. Well, that does track for me for the amount of stress this guy was under. Absolutely. And this culminated in an ulcer that was failing to respond to any of the normal treatments. Ugh. So constant head pain, constant stomach pain. In June 1963, Barney's physician told him he suspected all these ailments were psychosomatic due to the stress. And he referred him to a shrink who happened to work in the same building. I definitely heard that for stomach aches. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a lot of uh, symptoms the body can manifest. Oh, for sure. Psychosomatic. I've just heard that particularly about stomach aches. Yeah. Well, an ulcer definitely can be stress related. Mm -hmm. um, this psychiatrist, Barney didn't seem to mind the uh, work he was doing with the psychiatrist. He went for a couple of months, but he ended up asking the new shrink about this crazy hypnosis thing he'd heard about. Mm -hmm. And the psychiatrist said it was actually kind of a promising new field. And referred him to Benjamin Simon, sorry, Dr. Benjamin Simon, a psychiatrist and hypnotist in Boston. Okay. And it was Dr. Simon who would pull from the hills the lurid and fantastic details of their abduction episode. Oh. You see, hypnotists believe they can get to deep memories, repressed memories, hidden memories mm -hmm. by revisiting those memories in a uh, hypnotic trance state rather than a conscious one. Mm -hmm. And we'll find out if it worked after the break. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Lots of things are a struggle right now. 
school, work, even something as simple as going to the grocery store, it could feel overwhelming. But one thing that shouldn't be overwhelming is accessing mental and emotional care. That's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp is the leader in online counseling with over 4,000 licensed counselors on the site and over 500,000 people who have gotten counseling to date. The mission of BetterHelp is to make professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient so anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. I've been using BetterHelp for the better part of this year, and honestly, I don't know how I would have gotten through 2020 without it. And, of course, Sean and Poe. When I need to talk to my counselor, I can just text her and I can schedule chats, phone calls, or video calls for longer sessions. This means I have flexibility to set a session during the week, or during busy weeks, I can just shoot her a message here and there when I have time. Take control of your mental and emotional well-being. BetterHelp is a great place to start. For 10% off your first month subscription of BetterHelp, go to our podcast link at www.betterhelp.com slash scary and see how good it can feel to push past the struggle and find hope in a new day. That's www.betterhelp.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y for 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Get professional counseling anytime, anywhere, because you deserve to be happy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. When last we left you, Betty and Barney Hill were about to embark on a journey of self-discovery, or rediscovery, as Dr. Benjamin Simon attempted to recover their apparent lost memories through hypnotic regression. Now, you, Rome wasn't built in a day, and <laughs> memories aren't hypnotically regressed in a day either. Dr. Simon hypnotized each of the hills... Separately? Separately, and over the course of weeks. Weeks and weeks of hour-long sessions. So they were both going to Boston, like... Every Saturday. Oof. (laughs) Barney's like, I can't get out of the car! And he got Barney's sessions out of the way first, and then he went uh, and did Betty's sessions. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that's interesting about the memories that we get to in these... In these hypnosis sessions. And everything was recorded, of course, but some of Barney's audio eventually became uh, public domain after being featured in an audiobook version of uh, a book that we haven't gotten to yet in our in our program here. <laughs> so the point is, some of this audio um, has come down to us, and so uh, you can really get a sense for Barney's emotional state. Mm-hmm. This doesn't sound like a man who's lying. It, first of all, sounds like a man who's hypnotized. And, um, well, I don't know. We'll just have to let his words uh, speak for themselves. But what Dr. Simon was able to get out of Barney was a much more detailed account than we had before. Not only does this fill in the missing time in a manner, spoiler alert, that is pretty pretty similar to Betty's dreams I described. Mm-hmm. 
Not only that, it also adds a lot more detail than Barney had previously given uh, about the earlier sighting of the UFO craft. Before they got onto it. Yes. Okay. Now, even on the small amount of tape that we have, uh, you can hear that Barney is frequently upset by these memories mm. or what he th thinks are memories. And um, he, there are outbursts of emotion to the point where uh, Simon will occasionally end a session early if things are getting too emotional and upsetting. Um, and he told Barney, he made the decision pretty early on to tell Barney under hypnosis that he wouldn't remember any of this until he could remember all these things without trauma. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that speaks well of Dr. Simon then, that he's not just like pushing and pushing this guy. So you can hear Barney's voice at the end there. Yeah. Now, as Barney told this version of the story, he, he confided to <laughs> Dr. Simon that Betty was badgering him about this light in the sky that he was pretty sure was a plane. And he kept trying uh, to tell her that. But it sounds like the more he had to tell her that, the more he started doubting himself. Sure. I mean, the more it zips around, it's harder to explain that it's a plane. And the more nervous he was getting. Hmm. I think you can hear the emotion here. I believe Betty is trying to make me think this is a flying saucer. Was it light enough to see? It was just a light moving through the sky. And I heard no noise. And I think this is ridiculous. <laughs> and Betty, it is not a flying saucer. What are you doing that for? You want to believe in this thing. And I don't. Very telling at the end there. Betty wants to believe in this thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't. Yeah, it seems like she might have been excited, like, ooh, maybe it's a flying saucer. And he's like, no, it's a plane. It's like, that's that's crazy people stuff. Stop mm -hmm. talking about crazy people stuff. We're not crazy people. <laughs> right? Um, finally, and and he makes a sense, even in his, you can hear how tranced out he is, right? Mm -hmm. Even in his half-conscious state, um, Barney sounds like he was getting pretty irritated uh, with Betty. <laughs> Uh, and and finally pulled off to get a closer look at the craft, almost just to shut her up. Mm -hmm. And I think I will get a good look at this because Betty was very annoying. <laughs> because Betty was very annoying. <laughs> that is a man under <laughs> hypnosis. <laughs> Now, uh, you're not incapable of showing emotion when you're under hypnosis. You can hear how kind of deadened his voice is. But like I said, there are times when he gets uh, genuinely upset on these tapes. And they're not that seldom either. Um, for example, when we talked about the encounter with the big pancake in the field, or when they, were, when they parked in the middle of the road. The flying pancake. Yeah, the giant flying pancake. <laughs> um, as he's trying to describe what he saw in the sky to... Dr. Simon, 
that's the first time Barney, uh, you can really hear him sort of freak out on the tape. I try to maintain control so Betty cannot tell I am scared. God, I'm scared. It's all right. You can go right on and experience it. It will not hurt you now. I got to get my gun. Jesus Christ. Yeah, does it sound like he's a little upset? Yeah, and he doesn't sound like he's faking it either. That is genuine terror. No, I think what we're hearing there is this is a man who genuinely thinks he lost time. His his wife has been telling him for two years now that they were abducted in that time <laughs> and experimented on. She doesn't know what happened to him because he was in a different room. And he's somewhere between thinking he's crazy Mm -hmm. And thinking he was raped by aliens. Yeah. And he probably fiddled around with his dentures, too. And neither one sounds sounds good to him. No. And, uh, and I'm not sure which one I'd pick. I think you're, you're hearing a man who is really at his wit's end and, uh, uh, you know, at a crossroads between what reality should be and, and what his perception is. Mm -hmm. He does, however, he is he regains composure and he's able to give... Dr. Simon, more detail on the inhabitants of the craft. Uh, he says that there were eight uh, to 11 of them looking back at him through the two rows of windows. Uh, he said they wore black, shiny uniforms, and one looked over his shoulder at Barney with a friendly smile. Could you see him clearly? Yes, I thought. What's his face like? What does it make you think of? It's round. I think of, I think of a red-haired Irishman. You weren't expecting that, were you? No, I was expecting a, a big-nosed little guy. Nope, a, a red-headed Irishman. Okay. Now, Dr. Simon's a little confused by this, and still under hypnosis, Barney explains that it's not that this man had the features of an Irish man. A red-headed Irish man. Um, it was more the way he felt inside. Uh, reminded the vert Reminded under hypnosis, Walter, of an Irishman. And uh, here's why. Maybe it's more of a social thing than a physical one. Because Irish are usually hostile to Negroes. And when I see a friendly Irish person, I react to it. I thinking I will be friendly. I will say that I love people of all colors and creeds. <laughs> Makes me real feel real awkward about having the last name McCabe. Like I said, the city of Boston is not great mm. on race. <laughs> um, so if these things didn't look like people exactly, this wasn't an actual red-headed Irishman, um, what did they look like? And, and he only tries to give a little bit of description of the beings here in uh, in his accounts, although he did also draw a sketch of one of the creatures under hypnosis. Do you have the sketch? Of course I do. Yes. Did they have faces like other people? You say one reminded you of a red-headed Irishman. His eyes 
was slanted. I see it so. His eyes were slanted. But not like a Chinese. Oh, boy. Barney. I love the way he says that one. His eyes were slanted. Oh, I see. His eyes were slanted. Oh, Boy, so the top one's Barney. Yeah, the bottom two are from a uh, a later book with an artist's help. Is he like wearing a, a little sketch. a little hat? Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not <laughs> Is sure that what. A toupee? Oh, that might be part of their uniform. I think they had little caps. Stop! They look like Team Rocket. Um, they they look like Nazi uniforms. If we're being honest, Barney said that one of the little men actually appeared to be wearing a a. a well, they all had the, the black glossy uniforms on, but one of them, who Barney kind of viewed as the leader <laughs> in this little window, uh-huh. uh, turned and looked directly at Barney. Did he have a tiny mustache? He didn't, but he had a black scarf thrown over his oh, left shoulder. Oh, excuse me! So he's like Hugo Weaving in Captain America. Wow, fancy, fancy. Yeah, uh, so the Red Skull is looking down at him, <laughs> yeah, while all of the other beings moved to the back of the craft towards some kind of a control panel. And the leader with the scarf, as he looked at Barney, he had a message. Do you like my scarf? He he didn't say anything. He was too far away. But he had a message that Barney understood intuitively. Stay there and keep looking. Just keep looking and stay there. And just keep looking. Just keep looking. Could you hear each other? Oh, I gotta pull these binoculars away from my eyes. Cause if I don't, I'll just keep staying there. Could you hear him tell you this? Oh no, he didn't say it. You felt he said it. Right? I know. You know he just did. Just there, yeah. Just stay there. He's saying to me. Yikes! In case you couldn't tell from the tone in his voice, Barney did not want to just stay there. He's not happy right now. No, and uh, in case you couldn't tell, we are at this point just moments away from another outburst from Barney. All right. I'll take you my head. Pull the binoculars away. God, give me strength. All right. Pull it down. Run. Pull the binoculars down and run. God. If there's my God, give me strength. I gotta get away. Oh. Oh. So now he's driving. Oh, God. This is harrowing. Yeah, really. Um, and here is the first time we get, here's the first time Barney gets his memories, allegedly, of driving away from that craft. Remember, on the night, Barney only remembered a maybe a buzzing or humming sound. Mm-hmm. And then things got fuzzy. There were no, there were no real memories. Um, but under hypnotic regression, he thought there might have been a little more to it after they had pulled off the road. I, I know it's in my mind and I don't want to say it. Well, you can say it to me. You can say it now. They're men. All with black jackets. And I don't have any money. I, I don't have anything. He thinks he's being robbed. 
by a group of men around his car. Mm-hmm. That flew in from the sky to rob him. Well, I don't think Hypnosis Barney has made the connection between <laughs> the abductors and the men around the car yet. Mm. He said there were six men standing in a dirt road when the car stalled. And Barney described these men as staring into his eyes. He actually says pushing. They, their eyes pushed into my eyes with a terrifying, mesmerizing kind of an effect, which caused him to close his eyes very tightly. As he was still driving? Oh, no. Uh, they, had, they had been stopped by the oh, men standing okay. on the road. Barney closed his eyes very tightly and, uh, from the sound of it, kept them closed basically for the rest of the time. Like the rest of the abduction? I am only thinking of mental pictures because my eyes are closed and I think I am going up a slight incline. Betty's hypnosis session described being taken up a ramp into the craft. Mm-hmm. This would appear to be that part of the experience. Look, Barney, we're going on their ship. Through very vague impressions. Barney's accounts get much vaguer at this point because, remember, his eyes are closed. Well, she, Betty also said he was like in a trance. Did she say his eyes were closed? Maybe they made it feel like his eyes were closed. That could be. Or Betty could have turned around, saw him with his eyes tightly shut and thought he was sleepwalking for that reason. Yeah. In any case, Barney felt like the two of them had been separated. He thought three men had taken him to a room uh, and laid him down on a small rectangular table. Uh, he continued to keep his eyes closed this whole time because um, he was terrified. Yeah. But the examination proceeded. A little bit different than... A little bit... Is it like the SNL sketch about the abductees? <laughs> yeah, it was a little different for me. Uh... <laughs> yes. uh, Kate McKinnon, the best. Yeah. Uh, no, but it was a little different than Betty's, um, presumably because of their gender. I was laying on the table, and my fly was open, and I thought, are they putting a cup around my private parts. Did they open the fly or was he like, oh, shit? <laughs> That's a good question. He just says his fly was open. So I don't know if they dropped it. Um, they seem to have trouble with Betty's zipper. So that makes me think Barney just forgot. You know, it happens. Because his zipper wasn't torn. Um, a cup-like device was placed over his genitals. Um, he didn't feel any orgasm or pleasure of any kind. Uh, yeah, well, thanks for the info. But he did give the doctor the impression that he thought some sperm had been taken from him anyway. Oh, boy. Barney's skin was scraped and his ears and mouth were examined. He was flipped over onto his belly and a thin tube, he said slightly larger than a pencil... Uh, was inserted easily into his anus and then removed. There was Jeez. no there was no pain. Now, w did anything get done to Betty in the uh... anus? <laughs> no, just that like at all. I don't remember her ever mentioning private parts. Um, no, they they did the needle thing on her, but not in the butt. No, not in the butt. <laughs> well, <laughs> he has a belly button too. I got a belly button too, you know. <laughs> I'm sure he was pissed when he found that. You got the belly button? 
<laughs> God damn it. <laughs> someone also, uh, he felt a finger on his spine, almost like someone was counting his vertebrae. Mm-hmm. Eventually, Barney felt like they were moved back together. She, he uh, heard Betty and the leader speaking in a mumbling language he couldn't understand. Um, he noticed none of the creatures' mouths moved when they talked to him, so he thought the uh, speech they were doing to him might be some kind of thought transference, he called it. He didn't have the word telepathy. What did they say to him? Oh, just things like, um, this won't hurt. You know, it's going to be easier. You'll be back to your... Both of them said, the aliens said, uh, it's, you'll be back to your car easier and faster if you just go with it, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> just go with it. Yeah, they mostly seem to talk to Betty. Well, she has a lot of questions. Yeah, she was almost badgering them. <laughs> and finally, um, he said his eyes were still closed as footsteps on either side of him escorted them back to the car. Down the you slight, can put your pa- pants back on now, sir. Down the slight incline, um, and to the car. He he found himself at his car again, with the tiring ordeal over. She gets into the car, and I am grinning at her, and she is grinning back at me, and we both seem so elated. We are really happy, and I'm thinking it isn't too bad. How funny. I have no reason to fear. Grinning. Yeah, who doesn't love a probe? (laughs) It seemed like he didn't. Seems like he wasn't a fan. He was very upset earlier. Well, here's what's interesting we can get into it later it's very interesting to me that all of his like really emotional outbursts come during when he's just seeing the craft Mm -hmm. and not when he's actually abducted and you know examined Mm -hmm. which you would think would be the most scary part sure although he did say he kept his eyes closed anyway (laughs) betty's hypnosis sessions largely agreed with barney's account of things they both said the aliens broke into groups of three and came around the car Actually, Betty said that four approached on her side, but she also said that Barney quickly closed his eyes, so uh, maybe he just didn't see that last guy. Um, Betty's regression was much more detailed than her dreams were, and there were some differences. In the dreams, uh, she sat quietly in the car, and the alien, the first little man as he walked up, said to her, uh, the longer you resist, the longer this will take. And so she sat quietly and let them uh, uh, escort her. Um, But in the regression, she tried to flee into the woods, and she was forcibly captured by them. Mm. In the dream, the aliens were calm and professional throughout. Um, But in the regression, one of the aliens standing behind her got agitated and jabbed into her back when she um, wouldn't move fast enough. In the dream, um, the EEG machine didn't have any kind of a monitor or um, tracer. Mm Mm-hmm. In the regression, it had a big, she said, TV-like structure uh, with all kinds of lines or something like that. Direct quote. Um, And needles were touched to her spine, behind her ears, head, arms, legs. Then she was rolled over and needles were touched to her vertebrae. Um, When Betty was stabbed in the stomach in the regression, there was no nice hand wave. The pain continued even after the needle had been pulled out of her belly. (sighs) 
and the map had changed to uh, something pulled out of a hole in in the wall. The leader now reached into a hole in the wall and pulled out a map about three foot by two foot for her to see instead of the geography class map that had been pulled down in her dream. So what do you think? Did the dream, was the dream stuff just kind of her brain trying to reckon with it and make it a more pleasant experience? Betty got um, very emotional as well. Simon ended at least one of her sessions early because tears were streaming down her face. Mm-hmm. Um, and she didn't draw any of the creatures to my knowledge, but Dr. Simon suggested under hypnosis that Betty could probably draw the star map that she had seen. I don't know. I could barely... If you asked me to draw the constellation Orion, I don't even know if I could do it. I'll show you the result. It is 12... Wow. 12 supposed stars connected by uh, some thicker lines and some uh, smaller dotted lines. Betty explained to the doctor that the thicker lines were trade routes (laughs) and that this triangle of dotted lines over here represents stars that are visited less frequently. And are those stars in between as well? Yes. There's just no trade routes. Mm -hmm. Huh. So what did Dr. Simon make of all this? Tell me. Well, after months of hypnosis sessions, once he felt he had gotten a full accounting of their memories, Dr. Simon told Betty and Barney that when hypnosis is done right, the subjects are unable to lie. Mm -hmm. He told them that everything they said would be the truth. Now, To Dr. Simon, that doesn't necessarily mean that those things factually happened. But they believe it happened. But they definitely believe that they happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Simon's theory was that Barney's recollections were a fantasy inspired by Betty's dreams, which she'd talked about for basically two years. Mm -hmm. Uh, He wrote an article for Psychiatric Opinion that uh, (laughs) called the phenomenon a singular psychological aberration. Um, He finally returned the tapes to Betty and Barney. And uh, told them that he hoped that repeated listens to the um, tapes would uh, help reduce their trauma. Um, Yeah, that's something fun to pop on for a road trip. Well, he tried to explain to them that... And by the way, in Simon's mind, he didn't buy into the the whole E.T. hypothesis. Sure, clearly. So it was upsetting to them to hear Dr. Simon say, it was impossible for you to lie under this. Nothing you said is lies. But also, I don't think any of these things actually happened. Mm -hmm. And so the Hills were uh, disappointed with their answers, but they were happy with the regression because the problem they had was this chunk of their memory that was missing. And it was obviously really disturbing Barney. uh, And now, apparently, they had an answer. Sure. So uh, it's all good, right? I have a feeling it's not. Uh, Well, the Hills didn't seek publicity. Um, They shared the tapes with some friends in the UFO community, though, because Barney was too uncomfortable to listen to them alone. So they have friends in the UFO community and the physicist community? Well, you remember our friend Walter Webb from NICAP? Yes. Um, When he heard these tapes, he was Uh like, this is real! (laughs) I mean, it it sounds real. Whatever they're going through sounds real. This is totally real, he says. And um, (laughs) Quote, unquote. Yes, this is totally real. Walter Webb. (laughs) Um, Webb introduced the Hills to a few local UFO societies, and uh, they started doing a few talks at, you know, kind of small gatherings. A couple dozen people, that kind of thing. The the kind of places, uh, uh, what's his name, Doe and T were (laughs) talking at before they they did Heaven's Gate. Um, Yeah, so they did a a few talks, but they weren't really looking for fame, supposedly. Fame found them, though, in 1965 
when a reporter for the Boston Traveler named John Luttrell started sneaking around and asking uh, friends all over Boston about the hills. How did he find out about them? Well, they weren't seeking publicity. They weren't making an effort to hide either. Remember, they were going and doing lectures at little UFO clubs and things. So people people were talking about them, but uh, no major media had covered the story. Um, Luttrell's editor gave him like months to do a piece on this, an investigative wow. piece that ran for five days in the Boston Traveler newspaper. Damn. The Hills tried to fight this with everything they had. Um, Barney was potentially about to be appointed to the State Human Rights Commission, mm. and he had just been appointed to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. So, Yeah, so you don't want that kind of clouding anything you do. Yeah, because then what do you do? You sound like a crazy person again. Yeah. So they refused all interviews. Um, they asked their buddy Walter Webb at NICAP to also refuse all interviews, which he did. Good friend. Yeah, because you know he was like, just one. I love just, interviews. I love cameras. Just one. There's nothing a UFO researcher loves more than a camera. <laughs> and there's nothing a camera hates more than a UFO researcher. <laughs> Brutal, Sean. <laughs> the article was published on Monday, October 25th, 1965, with the um, staid, reasonable dispassionate headline ufo chiller did they seize couple (laughs) ufo chiller i love it the hills uh claimed to be mortified and actually on the same day the article came out they said they saw a red light in the sky following their car yeah they had to go pick up a copy they wondered if the visitors had also heard about the increased publicity (laughs) oh shit we're in the paper guys this one said I had a big nose. Rude. They had to use this picture. <laughs> it's just the shitty line drawing that Barney did. <laughs> now, the Hills were apparently mortified by this sudden rush of publicity and, and didn't want it. Which for me makes it strange that less than two weeks later, on November 7th, they were speaking to a crowd of 400 at a Unitarian church in nearby Dover. Maybe they felt more comfortable with people who believed in this stuff. Maybe they just didn't want the people who didn't. And that could include the people on the U.S. Civil Rights Commission and all that. And by the end of that month, they had inked a book deal Mm -hmm. with author John Fuller and uh, Dr. Simon, who obviously had a lot of involvement in this story, too, and technically ownership over the tapes. Yeah, but he was just going to say that this didn't happen. They just think it is. It's an interesting choice. The resulting book is called Interrupted Journey. They decided that one third of the profits would go to Fuller, uh, with the other two thirds to be split between Dr. Simon and the Hills. Mm -hmm. Took some negotiating to get that done, but I think it went about one third to each of them. Okay. There were months of negotiating over these contracts, as well as arguments about what could be in the book, of course. Because Fuller's publisher, the author, wanted a sensational, you know, adventure. UFO chiller. Yes, a UFO chiller. Did they seize couple? (laughs) Uh, Simon, however, insisted on having approval and disapproval rights, more importantly, of all medical statements, claims, or conclusions made in the book. He didn't want any quackery to be involved if his name was going to be on it. Mm Mm-hmm. And he forced a whole a rewrite of the entire book after he read the first draft um, because he insisted that Fuller included at least the possibility um, and some of the scientific background on false memories. 
Well, yeah, if this guy is going to be involved, that's what's going to happen. Exactly. The book was published in 1966. It sold nearly 300,000 copies and uh, shot to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Wow. Mm -hmm. It was actually adapted in 1975. James Earl Jones himself bought the movie rights (laughs) because he wanted to portray Barney. That's great. And uh, he did, opposite Estelle Parsons, Mm -hmm. uh, Oscar winner for Bonnie and Clyde, in a film called The UFO Incident, which aired for the first time on October 20th, 1975 on NBC. Is that available to find anywhere? Boy, I hope so. (laughs) Because if it is, Patreon content. Hell yeah. Love me some J.E.J. Throughout 1966 and 67, The Hills, who must have been getting pretty comfortable pretty quickly with all this publicity, um, spent basically the whole two-year period on the road promoting the book at colleges, public meetings, and on radio and TV shows. They appeared on many of the most popular shows of the day, The Mike Douglas Show, To Tell the Truth, Art Linkletter, (laughs) The Merv Griffin Show, The Alan Douglas Show. Um, Are any of these online, these interviews? Those appearances, yes, you can find them. They're not revealing or interesting sure, as much as they're just fun. to see is, yeah. is interesting totally um betty always is having more fun than barney yeah that seems like a trend <laughs> um now around the same time a ufo researcher friend who they'd made in the early days of this a guy named robert homan um got back in touch and uh got the hills interested in the idea betty certainly interested in the idea of uh calling these aliens back Barney's like, no! (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, remember, they were elated afterward. Yeah, that it was done. (laughs) Well, they feel like these aren't... I definitely get the sense that Betty and (laughs) Barney's like, Betty, you didn't get the needle in the ass, okay? Like, I could see why you might want them back. She got the painful needle. I don't know why she wants them back either. So... Psychic research friends told her that the best way to psychically contact the aliens would be to return all of the items that were in the car that night to the car. uh, Including the dog? Not the dog. Along with her star map. Well, no, because it has to be all the time. Okay. From then on, the car contained the star map and everything that was in it that night. Yeah, I can't have the dog living in the car. No, not ideal. Um, Did the dog's behavior ever change? No, the dog was sweet. No, I know, but like, did it ever act weird after this, or like, was it just in the car the whole time? Um, it was in the car the whole time during the uh, abduction experience. Barney's regression says that when he came back, Delcy was curled up in a ball under uh, one of the seats, terrified. Poor baby. But Betty's regression said that Delcy was sitting up on the front seat waiting for her when she got back to the car, which was like five seconds later. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. There are differences between their accounts. Yeah. As long as she's good. She's good. (laughs) So at Robert Homan's um, instruction, Betty starts doing daily sessions of uh, psychically and verbally calling out to the aliens from her front porch. She would sit on the front porch for five to ten minutes just mentally talking to uh, the the beings. Okay. Um, During this time, there were also a... They thought it might be working because uh, Betty and Barney both reported seeing uh, UFO sightings. Betty more so. Yeah, well, when you go on the porch like, oh, my belly button's out. Huh, weird. I wonder what I could do with this 
belly button. She's like trying to seduce them. Oops. <laughs> it just came out again. <laughs> it's just the belly button. <laughs> they also noticed some light poltergeist activity. Oh, they in came, the house. They came home one day and found a, a chunk of ice on the table underneath a newspaper. Listen, having a dachshund is always having light poltergeist activity. Well, that's what I was thinking when I saw this <laughs> other one. It says phantom footsteps. It's like, you know, our, our little tiny dog can sound pretty big. <laughs> He's always click clacking around the house. Yeah. So, so she saw, anyway, Betty, I don't need to tell you this, obviously saw the lights in the sky and the noises around the house as evidence that her psychic callouts were working and the aliens were um, responding, at least in some small way. Mm-hmm. Coming to peep that button. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, now, unfortunately, Barney's health uh, had never been gr- great this whole time. Mm-hmm. And it took a downswing in 1968. Mm. Uh, starting with one of their, they were still doing a lot of public speaking and traveling. And at one appearance in early 1968, he got so weak, uh, he had to lean on a chair the whole time he spoke, although he did do the rest of the presentation, almost like, do you remember the story of Houdini's death? Yes. Um, They went to the hospital on the way home, where the doctor couldn't diagnose him with anything more than transient dizziness. Transient dizziness? Like the kind of dizziness a a transient gets. (laughs) Yeah, what is that? (laughs) So, um, nevertheless, Barney decided it was time to get serious about his health. And apparently in 1968, he was making an effort to exercise. Uh, He quit smoking. He started dieting. Um, But a lifetime of unhealthy habits and high stress uh, had taken their toll, and it was too late. On February 25th, 1969, Barney suffered a massive stroke. Oh, man. Uh, He was 46 years old. Betty wrote in her diary. He died. Yes. (laughs) Betty wrote in her diary that day. That the doctor had told her to pray Barney wouldn't survive because of the condition the stroke would have left him. God. Thanks, Doc. What the fuck? Yeah, it's not great bedside manner. Jeez. This left Betty more or less alone in the world, except with the people she'd met on her sort of UFO journey. The good news is... Betty had already made some friends through all this, and she would continue to make friends in the UFO community for the rest of her life. In 1968, she had heard from a uh, an elementary teacher named Marjorie Fish, who had read the book, read Interrupted Journey, and became obsessed with the star map. Love Marge Fish. This is just an elementary teacher. She made a 3D model resembling the star map with string and beads, like a... Uh, solar system she probably had a leftover from the solar system unit and spent months i mean spent like six months just examining her model (laughs) from every possible angle until she could get it to work oh sorry the model was of like a bunch of sun-like stars nearby Mm -hmm. or nearby our solar system and she was just looking at it from different angles until she found something that looked like the star map that Betty had drawn. As they so she didn't she didn't make the model of the star map. No, she made the model okay. of the actual cosmos. I see. Okay. I was just thinking she made the model of the star map and then was just staring at that for six months. I understand, but but that's <laughs> crazy, right? And just examining it from different points of view until she can get it to look. Remember, the star map is this. It's fairly specific for it being stars. I couldn't do something like that. Are you yeah. sure you couldn't? 
I could do a bunch of dots and stuff, but I can't make it look like anything. This doesn't look like anything. Look like anything that's actually in the sky. So eventually, in fact, Marjorie Fish did find one angle that seemed to match Betty's star map. And that suggested that these two stars you see at the bottom right here with the thickest line connecting them Mm -hmm. represented the binary star system of Zeta Reticuli. Mm. It's two two stars rotating around each other. Thirty nine love. Thirty nine point three light years from Earth. Okay. Um. Now, a statistician named David Saunders. He actually worked on the Condon UFO study, uh, a study pre Project Blue Book, even that basically said um, eh, UFOs are probably nonsense. Uh, it's definitely not worth studying them. <laughs> um, so he was a statistician who worked on that. So you think he's a pretty hard headed guy. He said that the unusual alignment of key sun-like stars that you see in that um, star map was statistically improbable to happen by chance. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't think I could make it be something that exists. I could put a bunch of dots and lines on a piece of paper, but that doesn't mean it's going to match up to anything. It's true. But in 1980, not everyone feels that way, of course. In 1980, in a Cosmos episode, uh, Carl Sagan (laughs) pointed out that if you remove the lines from both the actual star map and the one that Marjorie drew, it's kind of hard to say they even really look similar. If you remove the lines. Yeah. Like you can only make... the dots would still be there, the stars or whatever. Right. But it's, it's harder to say they look similar when they don't have the lines to help. Interesting. Looks pretty good to me. <laughs> well, yeah, but if you removed the lines, you would see that the distances are all stretched out this way. And... Well, the, first of all, it was in a dream slash hypnosis. And second of all, I'm terrible at any sort of height or distance or anything. So, I mean, you could just kind of vaguely remember it. Right. But then I still find it hard to believe that you'd even vaguely remember it correctly to, to this degree of detail. Uh, I mean, I... I yeah, it's hard to believe for me at all, but I don't know how hypnosis works. Yeah, that's fair. Um, well, Betty did, at least she thought, and uh, she went back for more. In the mid-70s to early 80s, uh, James Harder, working for the... Don't you dare. James Harder... What happened to James Hard? <laughs> James Harder, working for the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, now defunct, um, just wanted to find out what these aliens look like. And so under hypnosis, he asked Betty, I don't care about that star stuff. I don't care. I just want to know what they look like. Do you want to know? <laughs> Betty said that most of the men she saw were similar, but there was one different from the rest who was a weird little angry guy. He was three and a half feet tall, Aww. which is smaller than the rest of them were between four and five feet. This isn't the leader guy. No, not the one she called the leader before. Okay. This one had a basketball-like head <laughs> and a large flat-eyed face. She said his eyes were like Flat-eyed. fully black with maybe a little white showing around the outsides. Like I'd be po. mad if I looked like this too. He had a broad, flat, small nose. And his mouth was a thin, wide slit. Ugh. He had a thick build, a thick neck, broad shoulders, and a big barrel chest. Uh, four short, stubby fingers on each hand with no nails. And uh, under hypnosis, this time Betty said that he kept staring at her and glaring. 
She says this is the one who told the leader, the one she had called the leader, that to she take, couldn't keep the book. That she couldn't keep the what book. What was his book, Sean? So this might have been maybe this was the actual leader. <laughs> uh, she said all of the uh, creatures lacked hair, eyebrows, and eyelashes. Uh, they had gray skin, no protruding ears, long slender hands with one thumb and four fingers. The examiner, the one who looked at her, uh, was four and a half feet tall, so just a little shorter than the average. Um, his head shape was more like ours than the really small guy, and, and in proportion. And he had facial features um, similar to the little guy, kind of wrap around, flat eyes, um, small mouth, but with bumpy skin. Hmm. She said it wasn't like, not bumpy like a basketball, for example, but she couldn't exactly, it just wasn't smooth, but she couldn't get into more detail than that. Um, the one she had called the leader before, um, she now described as good looking, but clarified that she meant more human. <laughs> good looking for an alien. Yeah. Yeah. She said he had a triangular face that tapered down to a very thin chin and a small mouth and nose. Um, it's funny, they're not exactly greys like the Roswell aliens you mm -hmm. think of, but but there's similarities here. You can see... Yeah, the big eyes. The tapering down from a large top mm -hmm. of the head to a small chin, the tiny nose and mouth. And slender fingers. Slender fingers with no nails. Mm -hmm. um, and they're short. They're about the same height as greys, right? Four and a half, five feet. Couldn't tell you. I haven't met one. Okay. <laughs> you have to talk to Betty and Barney. Yeah. Um... Betty added some details under hypnosis that she said had been withheld from the public, but, quote, since you are interested in their evolution, I will confidently reveal some of these. Well, excuse me, Betty. She said Barney said he saw inside the mouth of the examiner, and there were no teeth, but maybe a small tongue. <laughs> and this is really weird. Uh. He said there was a membrane over the mouth that fluttered when the creature spoke its own humming-style language. Weird. He said, she said they were top-heavy and walked with a rolling sea legs kind of a gait. Yeah, so do I. But even though they were, <laughs> even though they appeared to walk with difficulty and were objectively scrawny, um, two of them carried Barney along easily. Hmm. So they're very strong. And uh, outside, she said she thought she'd seen one of the crew members gulping like a fish. So she thought they might have trouble breathing our atmosphere. Hmm. For her part, Betty also appeared on uh, F. Lee Bailey's television series Lie Detector in the year 1983, where she received a lie detector test on three questions. F. Lee Bailey, lie detector. Didn't he work for O.J. Simpson? Yeah, it's funny. The first question was, did you kill your wife? <laughs> uh, no, the, the questions were, did you initially receive the star map information on board a UFO? Okay. To which Betty said yes. Um, did you obtain it from a source other than a UFO? To which Betty said no. Do you believe your star map is a hoax? To which Betty said no. And she passed that lie detector test with flying colors. Mm -hmm. Throughout the 70s and 80s, Betty uh, became a something of a sensation on the UFO circuit. She was also something of an investigator, um, given her own experience with it. She was brought in on investigations of... Um, Is she like the Lorraine Warren of UFOs? Kind of. She investigated like a hundred different claims of um, Where's abduction. Where's this movie? I like that. And she found them mostly to be bullshit. Huh. Um, she said, quote, Of all the abductions I have personally investigated, in my opinion, only nine were true abductions. I think many of the others have a feeling of complete powerlessness end quote, that they're trying to, you know, deal with. Interesting. 
You'd think that she'd verify more of them, thinking that it would make her story sound better. Yeah, it's true. Um, although I think there's also an element of when a story's so when a story's really kooky, it's only going to discredit the other UFO people, whether they're telling the truth or not. Yeah, that's true. Um, anyway, in 1991, Betty, speaking of that, was disillusioned by the misuse of hypnosis and the quote kooks in the ufo field and she retired basically from public life hmm. um she apparently lived a, a happy and pretty active uh and pretty social life uh withdrawing a little bit more into her fit she was friends with all the boys over at Pease air force base uh, but that closed eventually um and she she spent just a lot more time with family and stuff and uh, she finally passed october 23rd 2004 gosh so she outlived barney by a good um Half a century? Well, almost 40 years anyway, yeah. Wow. Crazy. And that's the story of Betty and Barney Hill. I, I don't have anything else for you. So what do you think, Sean? Um, what do I think? I don't see any reason not to go with Dr. Simon's theory. Mm-hmm. I just think, right? I mean, <laughs> I feel like... Here's, here's, people have often said that, that this was the Hills. Do you think it's like a folia dough, like, uh, t the time slips episode? I think some of that plays into it. Yeah. I think they played into each other on this. I think you had Barney and Betty driving down the road. Betty really excited about the idea that this might be a flying saucer or something. And really, it sounded like she was badgering Barney about <laughs> it on the road. Um, he hears her say it enough times. Now he's starting to get nervous too thinking well maybe maybe but, but no but maybe you know when somebody <laughs> says something enough times um and then barney who remember is a combat veteran from world war ii um and a guy who's under a lot of stress and probably doesn't get a lot of sleep ever and his wife's been telling him for two hours that there's a ufo following them he gets out of the car he sees something that makes him jump back in and say we're gonna be captured uh and they flee after that, I think they just, you know, got home a little later than they were expecting. A little? It was almost double the amount of time the trip should have taken. And it was overnight. There was no reason it should have taken that long. Sources will often cite that that drive should have been four hours or so. Mm -hmm. But I will say that when I Google Maps it, and I would assume the speed limits and roads are better and higher now well you don't know if there used to be a different route that's true that isn't there anymore but i from what i can tell it takes five hours and 17 minutes to drive from still montreal to portsmouth two hours unaccounted for it is it is still two hours unaccounted for and yet people get lost <laughs> i guess and that for me explains it easier than it being Aliens. Then you've got Betty has some wild dreams 10 days later. That makes sense because they've been wondering about the lost time. I mean, it just feels like for me, if you believe them, and obviously that's the first hurdle. If you believe them, that I, shared loss of time for both of them is very odd. I know, but it's also the kind of, again, folia de, it's the kind of thing they could talk themselves and each other into over the How course of a few weeks, too. How do you explain the watches? If you believe them. 
They didn't notice the watches were stopped until the next day. But both of them? Well, they were both watches that you would have to wind every couple of days anyway. Mm -hmm. So they would stop, but usually you're supposed to wind it up and then it starts again. Mm -hmm. Neither of their watches ever ran again. So that's definitely curious. Very curious. And the shiny spots on the trunk are interesting, I guess. But I don't think the paint was even gone. I think they were just shiny. So that's something I could see. I don't know where it came from, but it could have been there before they, you know, they just didn't notice. Um, that that stuff's the, the physical evidence, none of it's that crazy compelling to me. Do you believe that they believe this happened? 100%. Okay. There's no, Barney Hill wasn't putting on a show. No. On that he tape. was terrified. And he was not, there's like a stereotype of, of manly, like manly screaming or whatever. And he was, he was not playing into any of that he was not trying to be masculine or manly or whatever like he was screaming he was horrified betty said he, whenever the subject of the tapes came up he would be deeply uncomfortable because he didn't think he sounded manly on them and when other people were listening to the tapes, because he was genuinely horrified yeah and when other people were listening to the tapes whenever those parts came up she could tell how uncomfortable he was because he would go can you believe that can you believe that stuff? Yeah, so I feel oh, like man. If, if he was faking it, you would have faked it differently. Especially if it made him uncomfortable all the time afterward. Yeah, I yes, I completely agree with that. I The hypnosis thing is fascinating. Maybe we should do an episode on hypnotic regression, hypnotic regression more broadly, because I'd love to look into um, the merits of, of that. Yeah, I've always uh, wondered if I should go into some sort of hypnotic therapy thing for my um fear of flying because it's been that severe like for a long time um i would love to not have that fear anymore if that's something that actually works but like, I don't, hypnotists in connecticut like i don't know what to google for that <laughs> um probably that it's like yeah then i'd get like the amazing samuel or something (laughs) so you've never been hypnotized even at like a party or something no i i know people that have done it at like college functions Mm -hmm. i think my friend sarah was once no i don't know what it's i would love to be hypnotized because i think it would be like really a a wild experience but i've never been hypnotized if anyone listening is a hypnotist (laughs) or has been hypnotized well no get at us and hypnotize us on the air oh for sure but i want to know from anyone who actually has been hypnotized as well like i've heard of people clucking like a chicken and they they don't remember it and stuff i think that's fascinating even i just love the premise that in those tapes we hear dr simon say you can remember it all now and you can tell me everything, but you're not going to get upset. It's like he, he can just, you you just put control of your mental state in his hands so completely. Yeah, that is crazy. It's a crazy concept. Yeah, it's like, how can you, I don't know, somewhere between conscious and unconscious, I guess. But I, I don't know. I'm, I'm very curious about hypnosis. But in any case, let's just say hypnotic regression is real. Mm-hmm. Let's just say you can access memories you wouldn't be able to access otherwise with hypnosis. Dr. Simon said that it's definitely possible to pull up false memories. And of course, we know where Betty gets the false memories from because she dreamed about these things. Mm -hmm. As for Barney, he had definitely heard Betty's accounts of the dreams. Um, Barney thought it was a ridiculous suggestion that he had absorbed so much of... It's almost like he was saying, like, I don't listen to my wife. What do you mean? (laughs) 
he does find her annoying sometimes. So uh, he 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 was he found that ridiculous the idea that he would have accidentally remembered what Betty had said. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also has his eyes. It's a way less detailed account, and he gives sort of the generics you would expect. Um, he gives the generalities of a actual medical exam, kind of, with the added stuff with the genitals and the butthole, which a straight American man in 1961 is just so uncomfortable with that stuff that he's like, if he's nervous about missing time, it's because he's worried someone did something to his butt and his penis. <laughs> well, specifically uh, the latter, because he went right into the bathroom to check it. Check, check on those genitals. Let's check them out. <laughs> Yeah. So is it a weird story? Yeah. Yeah, it's a real weird story. That's why I wanted to cover it. Um, but I think it's best explained with um, a shared hysteria. Hmm. I don't know. I, I think they're both being honest in how they feel and what they think happened. And yeah. beyond that, couldn't tell you. If anyone wants to read further into this, I'll say my main source was Captured. The Betty and Barney Hill story that's captured, exclamation point, like it's a musical. <laughs> captured, captured. Hey, start writing it, Carrie. Captured. <laughs> Which is by Kathleen Marden, who's actually the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. Um, and a member of, uh, she's a pretty uh, high-ranking member of MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. Mm -hmm. Which is uh, sort of the... I don't know. They're, they've got to be the biggest UFO group in the world, right? I think I think so, yeah. They're the ones you hear about the most often. They're definitely the most um, enthusiastic. Vocal. Vocal <laughs> UFO group uh, in the world. Uh, so she's a high-ranking member there, so you know how Kathleen feels about UFOs. Sure. Um, and she wrote the book with Stanton Friedman, who's kind of one of the fathers of modern um, alien conspiracy thought. Ufology. Yeah. So um, it's that's kind of the book. Again, Interrupted Journey was the name of the original book written about uh, about and based on the Hills hypnotic regressions, but that went out of print in 1988, so it might be a little hard to find. Uh, Captured is is kind of the book to read about this, I think. Although you have to remember, it is it's a book that is arguing for yes, these were really UFOs. Sure. All right. Um, I don't find Kathleen's arguments. <laughs> Very convincing, but uh, who knows? You may. What do you think, Carrie? You, what you, the things you said during this episode make me feel like you fully believe Betty and Barney Hill. I believe that, like I said, they're being honest and that they believe that's what happened and they're not intentionally trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. And like I said, beyond that, I don't know. Do you believe that five foot tall men from Zeta Reticuli took them into a large silver disc shaped craft and inserted a, a, a small object into Barney Hill's anus? I don't know, but I believe that there is life beyond Earth. Just mathematically. Mathematically. Yes. Um, intelligent life, I should say. And... Um, I will never fully discount like a, a UFO type of situation based on, well, aliens aren't real. Because I, I think statistically they probably are. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna discuss this. That's kind of the Fermi paradox. Yeah, type I wanna of thing. do I wanna do an episode on the Fermi paradox, which is 
but which, I, which I rests believe. On, which rests on the idea that it, it's statistically just about impossible that there wouldn't be other intelligent life so, out there somewhere because there's so many stars. So why haven't we met any? Right. That's the paradox. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that that's my belief is that the universe is literally like infinite. Um, we can't be the only thing that's alive. You know? Agreed. But that doesn't mean that they've come here. No, but it could. I mean, we say, oh, we can't go faster than the speed of light or whatever, all that stuff. Stanton Friedman points. We don't know. We don't know what's possible even on Earth in a million years, you know? Well, Stanton Friedman points out that if a, as you approach light speed, as you approach the speed of light, Einstein said uh, your subjective perception of time uh, would get slower. Mm-hmm. And so Friedman says that uh, the pers- for someone traveling from Earth to Zeta Reticuli, uh, if they were going at close to the speed of light, it might only take for them about 40 months in the spaceship, even though it would take, you know, thousands <laughs> of years in the actual uh, spaceship. Well, after all, Sean, what is time? Yes, exactly. They didn't know. Uh, I will just on that Stanton Friedman thing. I don't think he realizes that that doesn't solve the problem with space tra- travel because the ship is still taking thousands of years to get there. Mm hmm. Just the people inside can survive the trip now, but that doesn't mean you can make a space empire where every trip takes 40, 50, 100,000 years. Watch me, Sean. Oh. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Want to treat your pup to something special? When you visit www.barkbox.com slash scary, you can receive a free month added to your plan when you sign up for a 6- or 12-month subscription. That's an extra month of two fun toys, two full-size bags of treats, and a tasty chew at no additional cost. Recent box themes have included Home Alone, Liquor Treat, and A Night at the Squeakeasy. Poe loves trying out new toys and treats, and he was psyched to get a BarkBox. Your pup will be too. So sign up at www.barkbox.com slash scary for a free month added to any 6- or 12-month subscription. That's BarkBox.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y. Give your furry friends something to bark about. BarkBox. Carry purchased. Poe approved. Let's head on back to Poe's Cryptid Corner. 
In January, Oklahoma House of Representatives member Justin Humphrey introduced a new bill to the state legislature that called for the establishment of an official Bigfoot hunting season. Woo! Yes! Let's go! (laughs) Under the parameters of Humphrey's bill, licenses would be regulated by the Oklahoma Wildlife Conservation Commission and set dates would be established for hunting Bigfoot, uh, Bigfeet, not sure, just like other wildlife, like deer. Humphrey stated, quote, Tourism is one of the biggest attractions we have in my house district. Establishing an actual hunting season and issuing licenses for people who want to hunt Bigfoot will just draw more people to our already beautiful part of the state. It'll be a great way for people to enjoy our area and have some fun. The bill would only allow trapping Bigfoot, not killing him or her. Humphrey is also hoping to secure a $25,000 bounty to be paid out to anyone who successfully captures the creature. Initially, this story seemed pretty crazy, but I don't know. It could be a fun way to get some people to visit Oklahoma. And I like that the monetary reward hinges on not killing the Bigfoot. So I say good for Justin Humphrey. Well, yeah, you, you also just can't have hundreds of tourists out there with guns shooting at an an imaginary man. You can during Bigfoot hunting season, Sean. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. Yep. Special thanks to our Tier 3 patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, and Maria Ferrante. See you next Thursday. Show created by Carrie and Sean McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can check him out over at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. This has been a production of Longboy Media. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing Podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.